Awesome. So good to be with you today, Love Chapel Hill. Excited for what the Lord has to teach us today and how he's going to challenge us today. And uh, we want to continue in, in that spirit of openness, uh, having our hearts, minds, souls open to how he wants to lead us today and challenge us through his word. Let's, let's pray that again. Jesus, thank you so much for the reality of your word, for the truth that you are the living word, that you are the word made flesh, that you showed us what this looks like, that you went first, that you paved the way, that you carved out this new and narrow way of what it means to walk in the depth of the love of the kingdom of God. I pray that you would challenge us today through the living, powerful word and the fact that your voice continues to echo throughout history and speaks to us here in this place right now. Thank you that your word has the power to shape us, that your word has the power to disciple us, that your word has the power to transform us and to change us in the deepest places of who we are. So we ask that you would do that today. So in your name we pray. Amen. Amen. Uh, we're going to be in John chapter 10 today, and we're going to be looking mainly at verses 11 through 18. That's kind of our, our solid spot where we're going to stay today. Uh, and this is a continuation of where we've been for the last couple of weeks. All right. So we've been walking through the gospel of John uh, and what we've been carving out here and mapping out here is this kind of small story arc through the life of Jesus. And the reason that we've landed in the passages that we've been in uh, is because these passages together uh, give us a, a small glimpse of the larger picture of the mission and ministry and identity of Jesus gives us a glimpse into the Jesus story. So that's that's why we've been doing that. And you'll see how that kind of completes today uh, in what Jesus has to say in this passage as he's describing uh, his identity. Yes, but also his mission and how those two are so intimately tied together. So we're going to look at uh, verses 11 through 18. Uh, before we do that, I want to start with the verses right before that in verse 10 and pause for just a moment uh, in verse 10. This is a verse that you might be familiar with. Uh, maybe you've heard this before. Or you've heard this phrase, but Jesus says this. He says, the thief comes only to steal and kill and destroy. I have come that you may have life and have it to the full. I have come that you may have life and have it to the full. In other translations, it uses the term abundant life, describing who Jesus is. Um, last week, when we were talking about Jesus standing in the middle of this festival, in the middle of this religious celebration, and declaring himself to be the water of life, and we talked about how connected that is to our very existence, that we have to have water to survive, that you can't make it more than three days as a human being without water. We need it. Primal need of our lives for, for existence and how Jesus is tying himself to that and saying, I am the life. I am so much the life. I'm borrowing this image of water to describe who I am. You have to have me to be fully 
alive. And our friend Amanda Aziz in Bible study this week. Hello, Amanda. Uh, let's give it up for Amanda. Amanda blew my mind with an observation this week that I, I, this had never crossed my mind. And when she said it, I was like, oh my goodness. All right, stop. Okay. She made this connection between that, between the fact that we need water to live and that connection of three days. We can't go more than three days without water. She connects that to the crucifixion and resurrection of Jesus, the resurrection that takes place three days after the crucifixion of Jesus. And she says he's so much the life that the world itself could not go more than three days without Jesus. Come on. That is powerful. And that's the best thing you're going to hear today. All right. We should just pack it up. That is so powerful. But that's the reality of who Jesus is. That's the truth about who he is. And so here leading into the passage where we are today, we see that overlap and that connection. And Jesus says, I have come that you will that you can have life, that you might have life and have it to the full, abundant life, real life life, the life you've been longing for. The first week we asked that question, what do you want? Jesus asked that question. It's the first words of Jesus in the Gospel of John. The first words we find in the mouth of Jesus in the Gospel of John, that question, what do you want? And we talked about the depth of that and that the answer to that question is probably not your first answer, or your second answer, or your third answer, but really that question is about the deeper longings of our lives. It's not just to answer with a wish list of things, but to get down at the deep core motivations and longings in the depths of our heart. So we're continuing with that. And Jesus asked that, what do you want? We want life in him. We want life in him. We want him. We want him. There's a longing for him. There's an ache for him. We were made for him, and he is our existence. So Jesus continues here uh, in this chapter, and here we're going to read this all together. Uh, chapter 10, verses 11 through 18. And once again, we see Jesus continuing to use these word pictures, these metaphors to help us understand. And it starts out with this statement. Jesus says, verse 11, I am the good shepherd. The good shepherd lays down his life for the sheep. The hired hand is not the shepherd who owns the sheep. So when he sees the wolf coming, he abandons the sheep and runs away. Then the wolf attacks the flock and scatters it. The man who runs away because he is a hired hand, or the man runs away because he is a hired hand and cares nothing for the sheep, only for the paycheck. I am the good shepherd. I know my sheep and my sheep know me. Just as the Father knows me and I know the Father and I lay down my life for the sheep. You see that comparison and that contrast that Jesus is striking here between a hired hand who doesn't have any real investment in the sheep. It's only an investment in themselves. And he says, that's not me. I am the good shepherd shepherd. I lay down my life for the sheep. I have other sheep, he goes on, that are not of this sheep pen. 
I have other sheep that you don't even know anything about. He says, I must bring them also. They too will listen to my voice and there will be one flock and one shepherd. The reason my father loves me is that I laid down my life only to take it up again. No one takes it from me, he says, but I lay it down of my own accord. It is my will and my decision, Jesus says, to lay down my life. I have authority to lay it down and I have authority to take it back up again. Powerful. Powerful. This command I received from my father, Jesus says. And then the next verse tells us that the religious leaders, just like where we left them last week, after Jesus speaks, it says that the people were divided because of Jesus. And it says the same thing after this again. The people were divided because of what Jesus has to say. Once again, here we see the genius of Jesus at play. Incredible teacher, so brilliant in the way that he draws us into what he's trying to teach us. And so over and over again, we see him do this like he did last week with the water. He's doing this again with the image of a shepherd. Now for us, the water imagery makes a lot of sense. The shepherd imagery probably doesn't make as much natural sense for us. Anybody here ever worked as a shepherd? Okay, awesome. Paul, you have? Really? All right. Well, we'll talk later. If I get things wrong, just don't say it out loud. Just let me keep going. Okay, awesome. Great. Um, so once again, Jesus is drawing from everyday imagery, part of his genius and his brilliance as a teacher. Because in this day, in this place, in this agrarian society, that is an image that was so familiar to the people that the moment he compares himself to a shepherd, there are countless connections that just click for the people. Okay, he must be saying this, 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 and this. I know this about the shepherd. I know this about their process. I know this about what the shepherd is willing to do. I know this about the daily responsibilities. And immediately these connections just fire away in the minds of the people when he makes this one statement. Again, not for us so much, but for them in, in that time. I am the shepherd. And images come into their mind. People that they know come into their minds with that one statement. It's the brilliance of Jesus. So he's borrowing from this everyday imagery and creating this layered metaphor that he only has to use these two words, good shepherd, and the layers just unfold for people. Another thing that's happening here is just like we talked about last week, uh, the, the context of the Gospel of John and being somewhat familiar with the Gospel of John sheds even more light on what is happening in this moment. Um, John is a brilliant writer and part of the way that he layers his book uh, is, is he uses a couple of different um, devices here with the number seven. Okay, and so in that day, in that place, in that culture, the number seven, for people who were rooted in the scriptural imagination, the number seven made connections for people as well. They understood that that's a, a, a symbol of fulfillment and completion in their culture and in their uh, religious faith and in their heritage. So throughout the Gospel of John, 
he uses uh, that number seven repeatedly. One of the ways that he does that is he lays out seven miracles that Jesus performs in his ministry. And the people who are reading along and paying attention get that. Okay, I'm making that connection. Jesus, these miracles, Jesus is the completion. Jesus is the fulfillment. This is important, and I'm leaning in. Another really important way that John does that is with statements like the one right here. There are seven different I am statements that Jesus makes in the Gospel of John. And so from all of the teachings that John has to draw from, he intentionally layers in his gospel seven different times when Jesus used a metaphor for himself and started that sentence with these two words, I am, and then he attaches a metaphor. Now, why is that important? Again, it's the scriptural imagination of the people in this day and time. In Israel's history, one of the key moments of their history takes place in the book of Exodus, where God reveals his identity to Moses, the liberator that God raises up to lead his people out of slavery in Egypt and into freedom towards the promised land. Moses is this core figure. God gives the law to Moses. And in this moment of intimacy between God and Moses, Moses asks God his name. He says, I hear you calling me and you're telling me to go and to take this message to your people. But who should I say is sending me? Who, do I, who, who even are you? What do I say? What name do I give them? What authority do I give them? And God reveals what became known as his divine name. And in this incredibly holy and beautiful moment, God says to Moses, tell them that I am sent you. I am that I am. I am existence. I am the ground of all existence. I am. I am eternal. Not I was and or w just will be, but I am always. I am. And it's this powerful moment. And those two words became sacred, holy words for the Jewish people. And for Jesus to utter them, in making this statement about his identity would have been seen as blasphemous unless Jesus really was God himself. And so Jesus intentionally attaches himself to the very holy name of God, the name that he reveals to Moses, and he calls himself, I am. This would have caused all kind of friction. This is one of the reasons why it says, then the people were divided because of Jesus. So it, there's this holy, divine, eternal mystery that Jesus opens up with those two words, I am. And yet in his kindness to us and in his grace to us, he attaches something that we could never get our minds around the existence of God, I am. He attaches that to this everyday image of a shepherd, a good shepherd. I am the door. I, I can't get my mind around I am, but I know what a door is, so I can start to make the picture come together. I am the living water. I can't get my mind around I am, but I know how much I need water, so the picture starts to come together. I am the way, the truth, the life. I know what a way is. I know what life is, so the picture starts to come together. And in this chapter, in chapter 10, using this imagery of a shepherd, Jesus gives us two 
out of the seven I am statements in the Gospel of John. So we lean in even more. We understand even more. This is a crucial moment of Jesus revealing his identity and also his mission, who he is and why he came here in the first place. And the two images are the good shepherd, like we just read. And then also he says, I am also the door for the sheep. I am the door for the sheep. So he pulls together these two images, the divine name of God, and yet this metaphor that we can form in our minds and we can begin to understand the reality of who he is and why he came. So the shepherd imagery is an everyday image, but also has deep spiritual significance for the people of Israel. Because when they think back through their history, they remember how many times God has called himself their shepherd. One of the core times is through the prophet Ezekiel in chapter 34. Uh, There's this moment where God is condemning and rebuking the religious leadership of Israel at the time. And he's saying, you are false shepherds. You have set yourself up as shepherds over my people, but you don't act like a good shepherd. You act like a false shepherd. All you care about is getting rich and staying comfortable off of my people, the sheep. A good shepherd protects the sheep. You don't care to protect the sheep. You only protect yourself. A good shepherd feeds the sheep. You don't care about feeding the sheep. You just want to feed yourself. A good shepherd makes sure that the sheep are are getting to lie down in green pastures of rest. You don't care about that. You just care about your own comfort. And so he's he's calling these people out line by line. And he says, you didn't protect my sheep. And so they've been attacked and they've been scattered. And it's a really broken, hurtful image. But then God starts to speak again and he says, but I am their shepherd. And in every way that you failed them, I will come through with my faithfulness for them. I will seek them out every place where they've been scattered and I will bring them home. I will go to the ones who have been wounded and injured and I will bring them healing And bring them back into the flock. I will go to those who have been neglected. And I will care for them tenderly. Why? Because I'm their shepherd. And that's what I do. And so God ties himself to that picture of being the shepherd of the people. He sets up this contrast of the false shepherd. Versus himself the true shepherd. And so we see Jesus echoing that. And the people, again, scriptural imagination, they're rooted in the scriptures. When they hear Jesus make this statement, that's one of the images that's going to come to their minds. This is what God was talking about in Ezekiel 34, so far back then. And now this man is saying he has come to fulfill that. It's a powerful image. Also through their history, Uh, When you look back through Israel's history and God's salvation history of engaging with his people, there are five core covenants that God makes with his people throughout the Old Testament. And actually through the fall, we're going to be returning to those five covenants and just taking them piece by piece and looking back at the promises God made there in the Old Testament in the Hebrew Bible and seeing the way that Jesus fulfills every one of those covenants in a way that we never could have 
imagined. But if you look back through those covenants, the five core covenants, uh, it begins with creation and Adam and Eve. Uh, the next covenant God makes is with Noah. The next covenant is with Abraham. The next covenant is with Moses. And the final covenant that he makes there in the Old Testament is with David, David the king. If we look back through each of those covenants, a strange thing starts to come to the surface when we think through the lens of this shepherd imagery. What is a shepherd but someone who cares for the flock? Who cares for that flock that's been placed under their responsibility? And if you look back through, you can start to see that image come alive through all five of those Old Testament covenants that God made with his people as you walk back through the Hebrew Bible. Of course, David, we get that one off, off the bat, right? Because when God calls David before he ever anoints David to become the king of his people, where does God find David before the anointing to become king? He's a shepherd. And so for the Jewish people, that image jumps into their mind in connection with shepherd. The shepherd who becomes the king over the people. And then we've got the, the image of Moses. And we know that Moses led God's people out of slavery and through the wilderness. But what was he doing for the 40 years before he returns to Egypt to set the people free? He was a shepherd in the desert. He was herding flocks in the desert. What about Abraham? We don't think of Abraham as a shepherd, but the blessings of God that get connected to Abraham, we get a couple of images of Abraham and his herds and his flocks that he is leading on this journey towards a land that God has promised. We get the image of Noah. That's not too much of a stretch, right? When you think about all of the animals and Noah leading the animals, right? And then you get the image of Adam and Eve in creation and what is their core commission at the very beginning, but to be caretakers and stewards of God's good creation over all things. It's beautiful. And so that image of the good shepherd, the one who is the caretaker, the one who with tenderness leads what God loves. We see that come alive all the way through that Old Testament connection. We're going to be looking more into each of those through the fall. But that's just strange to me how that connection comes alive in what Jesus says here. Uh, in verses 14 through 16, Jesus makes this statement about his voice, right? He says this, I am the good shepherd. I know my sheep and my sheep know me. All right. And, and how he says, by the sound of my voice, they know my voice. And there are sheep out there that you don't know about, but I know about them and they know me. They are my sheep and they recognize my voice and they follow me. They follow me and I have to go and get them, Jesus says. And you get this picture of rescue and this picture of Jesus searching out for those who are in need of rescue. When we get to this part here, uh, I admit that this is a really difficult part of the Christian faith. 
and of our experience of being followers of Jesus. When we start talking about the voice of God and being able to hear and follow the voice of God. For one, I admit how much damage has been done in the name of following the voice of God, of hearing God's voice and then acting in a way that ends up hurting other people or claiming the authority of God because I heard his voice, so I'm going to do... No. We recognize how much damage has been done in that. So this is a really difficult part of this passage. It's also difficult because so many of us have experienced or continue to experience just stretches of silence. And many of us would say, I can't say that I've ever heard God's voice. Am I not one of his sheep? Jesus said, they know my voice, they hear my voice and they follow me. So what does that mean for me? I've never heard God's voice or I'm in a time when I can't hear it now. I can't make sense of any of it. And I feel like he's gone silent on me. What do I do with that? One of the things I want to point out here is that in this analogy and metaphor that Jesus is using about the shepherd and the sheep, there's an intimacy that occurs with that voice over time. There's this learning that takes place by listening over time. And so I am definitely not saying here today that at any moment God's going to open up the sky and he's going to boom out of the sky and speak to you and tell you what to do with the rest of your life or tell you to do with, you know, what to do in whatever thing you find yourself in the middle of right now. I recognize the difficulty of that. I'm sensitive to it because I have been through it myself multiple times and in multiple different ways. But one of the things as just meditating through this and thinking through this is the reality of learning by listening over time. To my mind comes the image of a musician, a trained musician who can hear a song and hear something completely different than what I hear when I listen to it. Right. Most of the time, my response to a song is like, oh, I like those lyrics or I feel that song or I can connect to that or whatever. I like the way that sounds. Right. But a trained musician hears so much more because of learning to listen over time. They hear parts, harmony parts, vocal parts that I never would pick up on. They hear instruments in there that I didn't even realize were in the song. They recognize parts of the production process that went into it that that would never occur to me ever. But why? Because they've learned to listen over time. And there's a training that happens in that. An expert in literature can read the same novel that I read and I walk away stirred by the story. And I think that was a powerful story, but I'm not exactly sure why. And I don't know why it hit me like it did. But an expert in literature can say, well, there were these themes running through it that are just core to the human experience and they touched on this this and this and that got to the heart of who you are and it connected to you or they use this literary device or this technique there are those who are experts in political science who can 
hear a campaign slogan and they can say, I know exactly who they're going after and why. Learning to listen over time. There are medical professionals that you can have nagging symptoms that bother you and you take 10 minutes in their office and they tell you that it might be this. You've never heard of that before and it would have never crossed your mind that it could be this. But they hear and they recognize and they've learned to listen over time. A scientist who sees patterns that I would never see. A mechanic, amen on that one. <laughs> All right, my mechanic could take me for everything I own and I would be like, sounds right, I don't know. Sure. A consultant, a teacher, a journalist, a counselor, learning to listen, a waiter. Hearing what you might be in the mood for. Oh, well, here's what you need right here. Learning to listen over time. And so here's a challenge. It's so practical that it's going to be really frustrating. All right. Because you want something deeper than what I'm going to tell you. But it's so simple that it's going to be frustrating. But let me challenge you about learning to listen over time. Two things that I am personally practicing myself and a pattern that connects for me might not connect for you. And that's completely fine. But I'm just sharing from my own experience here. Two things that have helped me. Number one, reading the Gospels. And number two, praying a two word prayer that is so simple. But it's been so helpful to me. And that prayer is. I'm listening. I'm listening. It's not magic. It's not a magic formula. But those two things together have been powerful and transforming for me on reading the Gospels, making it a daily practice to read the Gospels. Go back to where God has already spoken so clearly. If you long to hear his voice, then go to the place where he's already spoken so clearly and walk through the stories of Jesus. Read through them slowly. Experience them again. And hear how Jesus responds in a situation. Hear the words that Jesus is speaking to people in a specific day and time and place and the way that they can still pierce your heart right here and now and carry so much truth for you here and now Jesus is the full revelation of the reality of who God is. Jesus is God in the flesh. Go to the story that tells you about his life and listen to what he has to say. His words are there. Listen to that. And then begin your day before you get out of bed. Try to train yourself to begin your day with these two words. I'm listening. Try to pray it throughout the day. I'm listening. Maybe you're in a place with the Lord where you cannot muster any other prayer. And even saying those two words to him make you feel like there's a wall and it's almost impossible to even say that to him. But try that. Test him on that. I'm listening. I'm listening. I don't know. The answer might actually be silence. I don't know. I'm not making you any promises on that. 
I'm not telling you what's going to happen. I don't know what he will do. But I'm telling you what has helped for me. I know that this is frustrating because for some people, your thought to that is, well, I don't want to do that. It's not that you've done it and it didn't work. It's like, I don't even want to do it. I don't want to do that. And I understand. I get that. I completely get that. And I understand that frustration. For others, the frustration instead might be, man, I'm, I'm way too deep into this Christianity thing to go for something as simple as that. This is what you're giving me? This is it? Like, I want the meat and you're handing me this? If you're too deep for the Gospels, then you're too deep. You, you have gone into a depth of something that's not him. If you are too deep to have a reset by going back to the story of Jesus and walking back through the story of Jesus and asking him to show you that in a fresh way, then good luck. Because to me, that sounds like the stories that we get in the, in the Gospels of the Pharisees who are so convinced of their interpretation and understanding of God that they've got him so boxed in that when he shows up in flesh and blood, they reject him. So before you reject it, ask him to open your heart to that. Maybe that's what you need. Maybe for some of you, it's because the Bible has hurt people. And I, I agree, that's really difficult. And there are parts of the Bible that are incredibly difficult for me to open myself up to because of the way they've been used against people. Maybe because of silence. You feel like it's too painful to try again. And I want to encourage you if that's you and for you it feels like a silence and God has not been speaking to you. That I want to tell you that it doesn't mean that he has abandoned you or he has turned his back on you or you have done something so broken that he has pushed you away. It's not true. It's not true. As we look back through the life of the prophets themselves that God anoints to carry his message to the people, as we look through the history of Christianity and into modern day prophets, some of the people that we know walked in deep, reality of who God is and displayed the love of God in some of the most powerful ways you can imagine. Many of them will say they went through long stretches in their lives that they could only describe as a dark night of the soul. That was the only language they could come up with to match what they went through. And they felt like God was silent for long periods of time. So if that's you, it's not that you're on the outside of God's love. It's that you're in the company of the saints. You're in the company of some of the most significant saints that God has used in the history of the world. He has not abandoned you. I don't know what he might be doing through that. I can't tell you the answer to that. I don't know. But I know somehow that it matches up with these other stories. And if that's you, then we honor you as a saint among us. And we have so much to learn through what God is teaching 
you. The shocking twist of where Jesus brings this and where Jesus ends this is what he says about his mission. He says, I am the good shepherd. He says, I am the door for the sheep. He says that there are other sheep that you don't know anything about that I am here to rescue. And I'm not abandoning them. You've pushed them out. I won't do that. I'm going to get them. I have come for them, Jesus says. This is an image that we come back to from time to time here. And if you can just, in your mind, or if you want to take notes, you can just draw one single circle. Draw a circle in your mind. And this is often how people see faith communities and Christianity especially. They see it as this closed loop of redemption. And there are those who are on the inside and there are those who are on the outside. And the loop is closed. And the line between the inside and the outside is as clear as it can get. That's a starting image and how people often describe Christianity. But as I look at the life of Jesus and as I look at the grace of God, throughout history and his engagement with humanity, what I see is not a closed loop, but add to that a larger concentric circle on the outside of that. Okay, now add another one. And now add another one. And what do you see instead of a closed loop? You begin to see a ripple effect of redemption. And this is what Jesus has come to do. And for those who feel like the loop has been closed on them and they have been pushed out, Jesus says, I've got sheep you don't even know about and I'm going to get them whether you're coming with me or not. And the ripple effects of redemption are going to roll on. And that's what I have come to do. And how will I accomplish that? Jesus says, I'm the good shepherd. I lay my life down for the sheep. Powerful image that again overlaps with Israel's history of the sacrifice of a lamb to demonstrate God's forgiveness of his people. That this lamb is sacrificed and the blood of the lamb covers the sins of the people. And he says, I'm not just the shepherd. I'm the one who lays my life down for the sheep. I have become one of them so that I can lay my life down for them to bring them into a reconciled relationship with me. And that's what Jesus accomplishes on the cross. He is broken open. And in the breaking open of his life and of his body, the door to God has been opened. And in the pouring out of his blood on the cross through his sacrificial death driven by love, our sins have been forgiven and we've been brought into relationship with God and made new through the power of the death of Jesus Christ for us. And Jesus says, I lay down my life. Nobody takes it from me. They couldn't take it unless I gave it up. And he says, I lay down my life willingly. I have the authority to, to do that, but I also have the authority to pick it back up again. And the world couldn't go three days without him. And Jesus picks his own life back up again in the power of resurrection. And through his death for us, he brings us life. What kind of life? Life to the full. 
life abundant, the kind of life we cannot live without, and the kind of life that he is inviting us into. Justin's going to come and lead us in communion. And as we share in communion today, this is yet another metaphor that is so full of meaning. And it represents the shepherd who laid his life down for us, the body that was broken, the blood that was poured out. The one who had the authority to lay his life down, to give it for us. And the one who had the authority to pick it back up again because not even death itself can stop his love for you. You're invited into that today. And as you share in this meal that Christians have shared in for centuries together, you're invited to this table and you're invited into the kingdom that gets opened up by the one who says, I'm the good shepherd and I'm the door for the sheep. And the door has been opened through him. Amen.